Welcome back as the IFC presents another episode of the Individuation Podcast. My name is James Malamus. We've got a great episode for you. The crew is all back today as Dr. Lahab Al-Samurai, Dr. Eric Tomlinson, and Dr. Lisa Hong continue our discussion, this time going over the story of the Red Swan. If you enjoyed the IFC's Individuation Podcast and want to support, make sure to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. So without any further ado, Dr. Al-Samurai, take it away. Welcome back to another episode of the IFC's Individuation Podcast. I'm Dr. Lahab El Samurai. And with me today, as always, Lisa Hong is with us. Dr. Lisa, how are you today? Doing well. How are you? It's good to see you. Yeah. Dr. Eric Tomlinson is also here, and the crew is back. Dr. Eric, how are you feeling today? Ready for action, sir. Ooh. Very good. Okay, so today we are going to take a North American fairy tale um, that comes from a tribe in the Great Lakes region, the Chippewa, um, or called the Ojibwa. Um, So the story is called The Red Swan. And... We're going to start with that story today. So, Dr. Eric, do you want to start us off or is Dr. Lee? Sure. Ojibwa was the youngest of three brothers. Their father had been a hermit and had died when the boys were very young. They had to learn to fend for themselves alone as best they could, for they knew of no other human beings. One day while hunting, Ojibwa was blinded by a red glow in the sky and heard a human voice. He followed the sound, and coming to a lake, he saw a beautiful swan whose plumage shone red in the sun. The young hunter shot all his arrows without hitting the bird. He then hurried to his home and fetched three magic arrows from his dead father. Even with the magic arrows, he missed the swan. With great effort, he shot the last magical arrow, and it hit the swan in the neck. The swan remained still and then slowly took wing and flew off toward the setting sun, taking the third arrow with it. Ojibwa was swift of foot and chased after the swan. He ran all day. He ran and ran until just before nightfall, he came to a village. The chief of the village invited Ojibwa into his lodge and soon offered the handsome young man his daughter as a wife. The daughter was not pleased with this idea, and neither was Ojibwa, who resolved to leave at dawn. But he asked the daughter about the swan. And she told him that she had seen it fly past and pointed out the direction. All the next day, Ojibwa ran in that direction and at nightfall came to another village where the chief also offered him his daughter. She received him kindly, but once again, Ojibwa decided to follow the swan instead. And the daughter pointed the way. The next night, Ojibwa came across an old man living alone. This was a magician 
who made a kettle appear with food in it, and that was continually replenished. The old man fed Ojibwa and explained that the red swan had passed this way many times, and those who had followed had never returned. But he said Ojibwa would succeed if he was strong of mind. The next night, Ojibwa encountered a second old man who fed him, and on the fifth evening, a third old man hosted him and explained that the red swan was the daughter of a wealthy magician who valued his daughter almost as much as he valued his wampum treasures. This wealthy magician had once worn a scalp of wampum, but some other Indians had asked to take it so that their chief's daughter might be cured of a mysterious sickness. Finally, he had agreed and had given them scalp, the scalp, leaving his own head raw and bloody. But those other Indians had never brought it back to him. His daughter, the Red Swan, had been enticing young men ever since then to get her father's scalp back. Whoever succeeds, the second old man explained, will get the Red Swan for his wife. The next day, Ojibwa set forth and soon enough came across a lodge from which the sounds of a man groaning could be heard. There he found the magician with the raw and bloody head. Behind a partition in the lodge came a rustling sound, and Ojibwa wondered if it might be the red swan. But before he could find out, the old magician asked to hear Ojibwa's dreams. Only after he told, had told him many dreams did the magician shout, yes, that is it. Now I know you will get back my scalp for me. So again, Ojibwa set forth and soon came to another village where many people were shouting and performing a war dance around a high post. On the post, the scalp was waving in the wind. Ojibwa changed himself into a hummingbird and flew near the scalp. Fearing he might be detected, he changed again into a tuft of down and floated onto the scalp. He untied it from the post and floated off. Then he transformed himself into a hawk and carried the scalp back to the magician's house. Once there, he slammed it firmly onto the old man's head, almost killing him with pain. But it fit perfectly, and the old man was suddenly transformed into a handsome young man his former self. He invited Ojibwa to stay and showered him with treasures. Out of courtesy, Ojibwa never mentioned the red swan and neither did the magician. On the day Ojibwa was to leave, the magician brought her forth. Now she was a beautiful young woman, so beautiful she was nearly unearthly. The magician told Ojibwa to take her with him as his wife. Ojibwa took his new wife, who had been the red swan, with him back to the journey home to his brothers. Along the way, he passed through the two villages he had visited, and the chiefs sent their daughters along with him. When Ojibwa and his bride came home, he presented the women to his brothers as their wives, and everyone lived peacefully for a long time. But then, Ojibwa's elder brother began to upbraid him for having taken their deceased father's magic arrows and they urged him to procure others. Their object was to get him away so that one of them might get his wife. 
Then Ojibwa set forth to go and look for the arrows. After traveling a long way, he came to an opening in the earth and descending, went down into the abode of, of the departed spirits. The country was beautiful. The, the extent of it was very great. The boundaries were lost in the distance. Ojibwa saw animals of various kinds in abundance. The first animals he came close to were buffalo that addressed him as human beings. They asked him what he had come for, how he had descended there, and why he was so bold as to visit the abode of the dead. He told them he was in search of his father's magic arrows to appease his brothers. Very well, said the leader of the buffaloes, whose whole form was nothing but bone. You have come to the place where a living young living man has never before been. You will return immediately to your tribe, for your brothers are trying to dishonor your wife, and you will live to a very old age and die happily. You can go no further in these abodes of ours. With the aid of his guardian spirits, Ojibwa returned the way he had come. After wandering a long time in quest of information to make his people happy, he one evening drew near to his village. After passing all the other lodges, he finally came to his own. There outside, he heard his brothers at high words with each other. They were quarreling for the possession of his wife. She had, however, remained constant and true. Ojibwa wordlessly placed the magic arrows to his bow, drew them to their length, and laid the brothers dead at his feet. Thus, ended the contest between the hermit's sons, and a firm and happy reunion was consummated between Ojibwa and the Red Swan. So. <clears throat> That's an unexpected ending. <laughs> so the Red Swan, it is unexpected. The Red Swan is the anima in the story, right? So as we start out, we always recognize the feminine. And in the story, the young hunter shot all his arrows without hitting the bird. So he's trying to capture the bird. He's trying to kill the bird. He's hunting the bird. He couldn't do it. So he hit it with the last one. He then hurried to his home and fetched the magic arrows. Oh, that's right. There you go. And then with those, he missed this one, but he hit them with the last one. Mm -hmm. The last magical arrow hit the swan in the neck. The swan remained still and then slowly took wing and flew off toward the setting sun, taking the third arrow with it. Ojibwa was swift of foot and chased after the swan. He ran all day. He ran and ran until just before nightfall, he came to the village. The chief of the village invited Ojibwa into his lodge and soon offered the handsome young man his daughter as a wife. The daughter was not pleased with this idea. Neither was Ojibwa, who resolved to leave at dawn, but he asked the daughter about the swan, and she told him she had seen it fly past and pointed out the direction. 
go chase that. Don't chase me. All the next day, Ojibwa ran in the direction and at nightfall came to another village where the chief also offered him his daughter. She received him kindly, but once again, Ojibwa decided to follow this one instead. The daughter pointed the way again. The next night, Ojibwa came across an old man living alone. This was a magician who made a kettle appear with food in it that was continually replenished. So this is a huge issue, right? For, for people at that time to have food, like it's, they didn't have grocery stores. So now that doesn't seem like an idea that doesn't exist. In the past, it didn't exist. So he meets his magician. The old man fed the Ojibwa and explained that the red swan had passed this way many times. And those who had followed had never returned. So this is where the hero is tested, not chasing after the bird, but his first test is he was offered a wife at a village, the chief's daughter. She didn't like him, he didn't like her. He chose to follow the swan. The second time he enters a village, the daughter seems to like him, not really that much interested in him. He's not that interested. He wants to follow the bird. Then he meets the magician. But he says Ojibwa would succeed if he was strong of mind. So he gives him, he gives him the clue that he must hold to achieve the task. The next night, Ojibwa encountered a second old man who fed him. And on the fifth evening, a third old man hosted him and explained that the red swan was the daughter of a wealthy magician who valued his daughter almost as much as he valued his wampon treasures. Okay. <clears throat> so... So he meets four old men. So we have the first, the magician who made the kettle appear. The second, a second old man who fed him. On the fifth evening, a third old man hosted him and then explained that the rest one belonged was the daughter of a wealthy magician. So the fourth man. The wealthy magician had once worn a scalp of wampum, but some other Indians, I'm guessing this is like First Nation, had asked to take it so that their chief daughter might be cured of mysterious sickness. Finally, he had agreed and had given them the scalp, leaving his own head raw and bloody. But those other 
First Nation peoples had never brought it back to him. His daughter, the Red Swan, had been enticing young men ever since then to get her father's scalp back. Whoever succeeded, the second old man explained, will get the Red Swan for his life. The next day, Ojibwa set forth and soon enough came across a lodge from which the sound of a man groaning could be heard. <clears throat> this is the fourth man. This is the wealthy magician. This is the father of the Red Swan. There he found the magician with the raw and bloody head. And he's also lost his scalp. What does it mean to lose your scalp? What do you guys think? What does it mean to lose your scalp? Is it just representing the frontal cortex? <laughs> I mean... Your direction? You, you've, you've lost the very top of what you are. <laughs> you know, the top of your head. Mm. And it makes you, if you even live through it, you know, it, it's going to make you vulnerable. Uh, it, it's a source, especially things. Are, this is a different culture. You know, um, hair was important to, to Native American men. And um, to not have your hairs, unless you're a part of the cult Native American cultures that literally shave their head. Ooh. But others were not that way. Ooh. So that's just one point so, about, about losing your scalp. So in this, you know, he talks about giving the scalp. He's, it's basically, it sits, it sits on top of my head. It sits where everything is. It's where the seat of the self is, mm -hmm. the top of the head. So it's not quite sitting inside of you. It's the top of your head. And it's almost like taking the soul. It's symbolic of taking soul. So the next Ujubu Asap Force soon enough came across a lodge from which the sound of a man groaning could be heard. So this is the part where he has to face his fear, right? He has to face um, what, what he might have to go through. There he found the magician with raw, bloody head. Behind a partition in the lodge came a rustling sound. And Ojibwa wondered if it might be the red swan. But before he could find out, the old magician asked to hear Ojibwa's dream. Only after he had told many dreams did the magician shout, yes, this is it. Now I know you will get back my scalp for me. So Ojibwa had a task. His task was to retrieve the scalp for the magician. And the magician found that out by asking him about his dreams. So Ojibwa sets out, and then he finds another village. And in this village, they're performing a war dance. And that war dance is around a high post. On the post, the scalp was waving in the wind. 
So I'm guessing this is a totem that they're doing the war dance around. And on top of the totem is where they kept the magician's scalp, where they kept his power. So hair is also thought of as power. On the post, the scalp was waving in the wind. Ojibwa changed himself into a hummingbird. Okay, so how did he do that? So he's been given powers by the magician because he's able to change into a hummingbird and flew near the scalp, fearing he might be detected. He changed again into a tuffet of down and floated onto the scalp. He united it from the post and floated off. Then he transformed himself into a hawk. So he's a shapeshifter. And carry the scalp back to the magician's house. So he is also a magician. This is how the magician recognizes him. This is why the magician asked him about his dream. Once there, he slammed it firmly onto the old man's head, almost killing him with pain. He reconnected him. He gave him back his scalp. But it fit perfectly, and the old man was suddenly transformed into a handsome young man. So I am now back to who I am. I'm no longer disconnected. I'm no longer without a scalp. He invited Ojibwa to stay and showered him with treasure. Out of courtesy, Ojibwa never mentioned the red swan. And neither did the magician. On the day Ojibwa was to leave, the magician brought her forth. Now she was a beautiful young woman, so beautiful she was nearly unearthly. So she was magic. Right, daughter of a magician, she's magic. The magician told Ojibwa to take her with him as his wife. Ojibwa took his new wife, who had been the red swan, with him back on his journey home to his brothers. Along the way, he passed through two villages he had visited, and the chiefs sent their daughters along with him. When Ojibwa and his bride came home, he presented the women to his brothers as their wives, and everyone lived peacefully for a long time. And so he, he took three arrows, three magic arrows. The three magic arrows brought back three magical women. The two chief's daughters and the red swan. So when the elder Ojibwa elder brothers began to upbraid him for having taken their deceased father's magic arrows, they urged him to procure others. They were not satisfied. So they wanted the original arrows back. But the arrows were exchanged the arrows were 
the amount that had to be paid. They were the price. Okay. This is when you're going back, trying to take something that you've already been given something for. Their object was to get him away so one of them might get his wife because they were jealous. Because remember, she does not look like she is from the earth. She looks unearthly. Right? She's magical. Then the Ojibwa set forth to go and look for the arrows. After traveling a long way, he came to an opening in the earth and descending went down into the adobe of the departed spirits. The country was beautiful. The extent of it was very great. The boundaries were lost in the distance. Ojibwa saw animals of various kind in abundance. The first animals he came up close to were buffalo that addressed him as human beings. They asked him what he came for and how he had descended there and why he was so bold as to visit the abode, the abode of the dead. He told them he was in search of his father's magic arrows to appease his brothers. Very well, said the leader of the buffaloes, whose whole form was nothing but bone. You have come to the place where a living man has never been before. You will return immediately to your tribe. For your brothers are trying to dishonor your wife, and you will live to a very old age and die happily. You go now. No further in these abodes of ours. You cannot go into the land of the dead to retrieve that which is already gone. With the aid of his guardian spirits, Ojibwa returned the way he had come. After wandering a long time in the quest of information to make his people happy, he one evening drew near to his village. After passing all the other lodges, he finally came to his own. There outside, he heard his brothers at high words with each other. They were quarreling for the possession of his wife. She had, however, remained constant and true. Ojibwa wordlessly placed the magic arrows to his bow and drew them to their length and laid the brothers dead at his feet. Thus ended the contest between the hermit's son and a firm and happy reunion was consummated between Ojibwa and the red swan. This story has sex in it. It's usually they don't. They're magical, right? They kind of have like children, but this one is like very explicit. <laughs> and conservate. Um, Less anglicized. <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, it's a uh, first people. Is having been a hermit colors the whole story? This uh, okay. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> So it's an interesting story. I like this story. I think about the story, I think um, it talks about envy. Um, 
it's about not having enough. So the, the first time we see that is with the magician, right? He has a pot that is always filled. So we see that this was an issue for them. So they were poor. So that was an issue. The other issue was, um, I think he's the youngest brother again. And they envied him and didn't feel like he deserved to have what he had. Right. The destructive element of envy, what is the destructive element of envy? You know, there's no, never enough. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, when you said that he was the younger brother, that makes sense to me mm. in the in the nature of these stories and in, in this story of his endeavor that took him really far. I mean, mm. he really visited four different villages, if not maybe five, or before mm. even getting to the magician um, to retrieve the scalp. He went very, very far. Um, do you think... I think your audio changed on a side note. Mm. Um, okay. You sound a little different. But, um, do you think that um, him living, being grown up as a son of a hermit is significant at all, considering he met other hermits later who had magic pots and fed him and urged him on? Are there any parallels or? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think the, the magic that he, um, that he faces is uh, what he needs to transform what he is to what he will become. So he starts out as just trying to get some food. And then the red swan shows up. And the red swan, um, so swans are usually ivory. So red swan is very rare. Right? And so it's considered to be sacred. And that's where, that's where our story starts. Is he falls in love with the swan. I think it's interesting, Lisa, that you brought that up because you know, is there, is this some kind of group that has some kind of network because the other hermits have magical powers. It doesn't look like he does, but then the next thing, you know, he's turning himself into a, you know, into a hawk and flying. Yeah. So, so there's his, 
I'd say he's got some magical powers too, but it, it didn't appear that he had them in the beginning. And I wonder if the, if the, the magician is the same. If it's the same magician that he's meeting over and over again. Yeah. I wonder if that's what's happening where he's facing the same because he's a shapeshifter, right? He switches shapes to retrieve the scalp. Now, we don't hear that the magician gave him any power. That's not indicated in the story. What is indicated in the story is that he, he has power. Although to retrieve the scalp, but he doesn't talk about it. But then he goes into the underworld. And in the underworld, he meets the animal souls. And their souls talked out of us like a, a carcass, a bone carcass. They talked back to him and told him that he shouldn't be there. As we know the story, we know it very well. Every time you go into the underworld, you're asked what you're doing there, why you're there, and why you need to leave. Right? So when you walk into the underworld, don't eat the fruit. Don't eat the food. Do not take the treasure. Yes. It does not belong to you. Learn as much as you can and leave as fast as you can. So if there was a manual, this is our manual. We're going into the underworld. <laughs> so if we think of our lives as fairy tales, we see that the fairy tales are all around us. We see that everybody's living a different type of fairy tale. Everybody has a story. And in their story, if we were to compose it, um, <clears throat> within each person's story, we find that the story resembles the stories out of our book. People are searching for things. People are searching for red swans. People are searching for magic arrows. People are hungry for things. But this is a cautionary tale, right? This is a cautionary tale about finding yourself and who you are. So our true hero is when he returns from the land of the dead because he descends into a hole in the ground and returns from the land of the dead. Interesting. I like the story. We haven't had a story from home 
Have we had a story from home? I don't think so. This is our first story. I think I this think is our first. It may but no, we've had some from the uh we've had some with the Inuits and uh some other the Native Inuits Ameri up in in Northern uh, American, yeah, North American. North American, okay. Yeah, yeah. We've had some okay. from, uh, from I thought they Africa. came I thought the Inuits were like from um they're from southwestern Canada. Yeah. 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 Okay. I thought they were more from the Arctic, but yeah. Okay. Starts from there and goes all the way up. Yeah, for sure. Any other thoughts about our hero today, our Ojibwa? I liked your points about... Um, about this being a subtle cautionary tale about Ooh. greed and jealousy and uh, uh, yeah. not, you know, very subtle. Mm -hmm. It's just weird to see in all, most of these fairy tales, because they're older, obviously, it's just weird to see it, it how it's just a good reminder <laughs> that we're nowhere near where we need to be as a people. Oh, but my gosh. Is it, is it better than it was 150 years and before ago? Mm. I mean, it's just harsh and just cruel and very, very difficult environment to live in. And yeah. And women were treated so horribly. Mm. And, and it's well, just that hasn't changed, unfortunately. It's changed from then, Lahab. Is oh, the yeah, for sure. Make it. Yeah, I mean, sure. it was, they were just property then. Yeah. And it and treated without any rights at all. It's just terrible. Oh, good to meet you. Here, have my daughter. Yeah, they were, they were considered an <laughs> extension yeah. of the state. And they're still considered an extension of the state with the passing of, um, of well, the ending of Roe, the killing of Roe. It's not the overturning of Roe, it's the killing of Roe, it's the killing of individual rights and freedoms for, and they were limited individual rights and freedoms, by the way, for those who don't know. There was only a set period of time you can have the right to control your body. Once you're over that time, you didn't have control over your body. You didn't have it after 12 weeks. That's what the, some states, you didn't have it after six weeks or eight weeks. Now you just don't have it, period. The state has it. So you're not in charge anymore. So certain things have changed. Certain things, unfortunately, have reverted. And it's a very dangerous time for all of us. When one group loses its rights, all groups lose its right. This is a very old mantra that everybody has to learn. Mm -hmm. Because it's a, an erosion of, um, of a democracy. When you start to tell its people that we don't do this anymore after 50 years we don't we don't have those rights for you anymore 
in, in the erosion and the, in the protection and sovereignty of autonomy. This Absolutely. Is, this, this has got to make you question Absolutely. everyone. You Absolutely. are next. If you are in a category identifying in some anything, you are next. It, yes. says, it starts here. This means everybody. It, it is everybody. It, it, is, it is the erosion of basic rights. And that's basic the right first one's body. And that's the first major step in leading, leading toward. I'm not saying that we're going to become that, but it's the first major step and leading toward a totalitarian type of government. Oh, yeah. And if anybody's been listening to the hearings, our former cuckoo, the orange one, wanted to go to the Capitol. He jumped on Secret Service trying to take away the wheel to go to the Capitol. And he knew they were armed. He had them remove the mags, he had them remove the machines that monitored the metal. They had AR-15s. They're walking through the streets of Washington, D.C., where you are not allowed to carry anything that looks like a gun in the streets of Washington, D.C. Anyway, that's the person who put those people who call themselves judges Supreme Court judges at that. That's the person who put them in charge. And those are the people who are deciding your fate. It's a very dangerous time, as Dr. Eric says, and Dr. Lisa. It's a very, very dangerous time. Let's turn that around. <laughs> yes. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. We will face the dangerous times with you. We will be here. And we will continue to tell you stories about how we live, how we think, and how we used to live and how we used to think, and how that needs to be changed. The symbols in the fairy tale tell us a story. The story is supposed to pass on a lesson. The lesson is something you learn from. If you don't learn from the lesson, as our Chibua hero understood, Ojibwa, you end up repeating it over and over and over and over and over and over again. Just as a reminder, if anybody wants to see um, wants to understand that there's the Jane's. It's on Netflix. You guys should see it. It's about it's about the women who used to help other women get abortions when it was illegal, and when women were dying because of infection, because of unsanitary conditions, because they needed medical care, and they couldn't get it. And this is medical care, right? That's what we have to remember. You have to have possession of your own body, your physical body. If you don't have possession over your physical body, you're a slave. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be a slave. You have to control your physical body. What you put in it, what's put in it, how it's treated, by whom it's treated. But we are not afraid. 
We are not anyway, afraid. <laughs> our our political commentary at the end of between between Putin and the Supreme Court. I don't know where we stand, but we are still here. So um, next week we will return with another story. Dr. Eric, you had something you wanted to. Yeah, just to make a correction, the, the Inuit go from Western Canada all the way over to Eastern Canada. Okay. So just, it's not just, yeah, it's not just Northern and Northwestern and yeah. Southwestern Canada. It's all across the entire country of Canada. Well, I think the limitations that were put on uh, First Nation people was that they only had a small piece and they lived on it. It wasn't like it was all theirs <laughs> and we took it away. It was like, oh, no, they had a small piece. They were in the corner and then they kind of moved out. But that's not how it works. And that's uh, not how it was. I'll show my ignorance here, but has the name changed from North American to First Peoples? Is that has there been a change in name that it's, I'm not aware of? Yeah, so First Peoples are the first people that were here on the land. First Nations first also. Nations. For, oh, first. So we don't use the term Native uh, Native American anymore. No. Well, good. That, I mean, good in the sense that if there's other listeners who was who didn't know that, like I didn't. Down, they now they now know that. Yeah, well, the native native um, had a bad connotation. It's um, similar to Oriental versus yes. Asian in that same uh, same okay. vein. Yeah, yeah, it had a it had a designation of the other, mm-hmm. non non human related. As defined by a different nation, not themselves identifying themselves. Correct. Where, you know, the University of Chicago had the Oriental Institute. Yes. The Oriental Institute basically studied all peoples from the Middle East all the way to Southeast Asia. Do you know how many tribes there are between the Middle East and Southeast Asia? Hundreds, if not thousands. So we're all calling them Oriental? a whole part of the world, but that's how it was. So I think that the new terminology, I I think is important. I think it's important what kids hear and what they say. It's not for our generation. I mean, we're, we're geezers. I'm well, talking I'm just, about you I'm, and me, Eric. I'm not no, I'm just about, saying I didn't know. And, and, and I've, I've actually read a couple of, Uh, books about first people's culture that's maybe the two books are maybe 10 years old and they they use the term north american north americans in there so i didn't know it had changed if it's changed it must have been in the last five years or so that the the terminology has been used by it's been adopted by the mainstream in the last maybe five to 10 years. Okay. It's All been right. used by those groups for decades. So these are not new terminologies for them. Well, new to the general public. 
Thanks for well, asking, Eric. I appreciate yeah. that. No, no, I mean, I mean, I've been reading books. I read books all the time on all kinds of cultures. I've been doing it for 60 years. And and I want to learn the new terminology. That's why I asked. Yeah. yeah. And, and I want other people to learn it too, because but but I was just thinking off the top of my head, this had to be a change in in my lifetime. Five years is is not very long long to a 25 year old that may seem like forever but to me that's just like a year ago well maybe you implied that they were all (laughs) they were one right no i got that yeah i was just thinking about when it happened when the change happened what i was we think of first nations we're not thinking of one person or one group we're thinking of several distinct groups that were here way before the settlers came and took over I like the term First Nation and First People. I really like them. I just watched a special called First Peoples. Yeah. <laughs> and it was and it went back to when you know when early human beings, you know, 200,000 years ago first came out of Africa. It was a terrific series. Yeah. But I, but but I didn't know that it was a common term and, and I'm term and I'm mm-hmm. glad to I'm glad to know that now and I like them. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, hope, I hope our listeners do too. All right. With that, we will see everybody next week. We are the Institute for Conflict. This is the Individuation Podcast. I'm Dr. Lahab. This is Dr. Eric and Dr. Lisa. And we are not afraid. Not afraid. I'm not afraid. We will see all of you next week. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the IFC's Individuation Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Eric Tomlinson, Dr. Lisa Hong, and Dr. Al Samurai. We'd also like to thank Eric and Lisa for taking the time to join us. You can also find us on the IFC's YouTube. Make sure to check out the Jam Institute for Training's Magicians Call podcast as well. Tune in again next time to the IFC's Individuation Podcast for another episode soon. The IFC is a not-for-profit institution. We do not have any paid advertising for our podcast, but we do accept donations. All donations and contributions are tax-deductible. You can find more info at theinstituteforconflict.com.